Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, a channel on the New Books Network. Usually on the New Books Network, we do exactly what our name says. We talk about new books. Today, however, we're doing something a little different. I'm interviewing Donald Morrill about his very not-new book of essays, Impetuous Sleeper. It was published a decade ago. However, it offers us an interesting opportunity to talk about a part of the publishing world that we don't often talk about. What happens when your publisher closes and your book goes out of print? How does that alter your perception of a book, of its purpose, and its potential audience? And yet, Morrill's essays offer us so much more than a look at the publishing lifespan of a book. He's crafted beautiful work that reimagines what the essay can do and be. His is a collection of startling insights and careful observations that gather to a lyrical abundance. It's a generous gift of a book, one that masterfully demonstrates an essay needn't be new to be apt, to be beautiful, to be, in the largest sense, newsworthy. Don Morrill, welcome to the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Eric. It's great to have you here, and I'm excited to talk about this essay collection which has a really wonderful name um, with a lot of music and mysteriousness in it, Impetuous Sleeper. And I'm curious if you you take us in through that title. Like, what can we expect? I mean, who is the Impetuous Sleeper? I know it's you, but what does that mean? Uh, well, the Impetuous Sleeper is, uh, there's an epigraph uh, to the book from uh, the Gilgamesh epic uh, from Stephen, Stephen Mitchell's translation. And that maybe is one window into this. It's uh, just a few lines. I'll read it. Now then, Gilgamesh, will you as- who will assemble the gods for your sake? Who will convince them to grant you the eternal life that you seek? How would they know that you deserve it? First pass this test. Just stay awake for seven days. Prevail against sleep, and perhaps you will prevail against death. Uh, so in many ways, it's a book, I suppose, about trying to be awake. Uh, and, of course, uh, failing in all the ways that we do fail to be awake, and also the confrontations of beginnings and endings in life. Of course, the, the mysterious beginning that is the beginning for each of us and the, the even more mysterious one that comes later. So it's a book of travel. It's a book of people. It's a book of perception. And in many ways, it's a book about the, the dreaming that we do in our everyday lives. Um, please, Eric. Yes. Yeah, it, it does seem to occupy this, you know, the, the, the opening essay is the first hour, mm-hmm. the moment of waking, and, and the closing essay is the last hour. And, and it's in that space where you're kind of in that beta wave space in which things drift and observations that you would miss if you were at the clarity of noon mm-hmm. come to you because you're still in touch with your dream state. And I think one of the, the beauties of the book is you manage to capture that tonally and atmospherically in the essays themselves. 
Well, I think that's the the attempt. I mean, one of the early pieces in this book uh, is is a piece that actually it runs throughout the book. It's, it's, it's sequential. It's a series of aphoristic uh, essays called Cicades. And that was a kind of early inspiration for the book because I, I came across this word, which has multiple meanings. Uh, one of it, one meaning is it's a violent check that a, a rider of horses gives to the horse with both reins. But it's also a, 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 a technique in, in bowing a violin where you strike and strike multiple strings at once. But it's also the scans that our eyes make when we look at an object and the scans that our eyes make in REM sleep. And I thought that's just too evocative. Uh, But it's also too literally uh, true uh, not to be a way to kind kind of find a way formally to hold together things that are seemingly disparate and to then bring them into some kind of uh, mystical harmony. How about that? A mystical connection of some sort. Stretching, stretching, stretching. Our, our everyday life is so full of connections that we're making that are also ephemeral because we don't remember them. We're making them all day long. And I was trying to get to some of that in this book. So what happens when you begin putting these in, into the, the frame of art, right, where what becomes the rapid movement of the eye across a field of objects um, creating those sorts of associations gets fixed. Like, how do you know which saccade follows which saccade? Uh, that's that's a good question. Uh, I wrote a lot of those and still do write that sort of thing. I'm kind of drawn to it. Some people are. And uh, there was a, a great deal of editing and sifting and thinking things through and, and, and trying to sort out which they needed to be. In some ways, they had to function like... Uh, like st- like the stones across a stream that allow you to cross the stream. You don't necessarily see that they're connected, but they're above the water. And they need to be, and at the same time, they need to be, uh, if I can continue the metaphor, not all that easy to cross. There could be surprises in walking across them or tripping across them or, or jumping across them. So, But each of them has to be an individual experience. Each of the sections has to be, has to, has to deliver something that gives you pause. And maybe it gives you, a long pause before you go to the next thing. And if you don't like it, then or it doesn't do that for you. Just move on to the next thing in that kind of form. The whole book is not that way, but in those particular pieces, that's how that works. I wonder if you'd read a few and then maybe talk about how you see their relationship to aphorism, or even some listeners might be thinking like, those are those are how I think of quotes or, you know, the way that those traffic now in social media or something. But if we could just get a feel of, of what the saccades sound like um, in that movement, I think that that would, would kind of flesh out that beautiful image of crossing the stream. Well, this is the beginning of uh, the very beginning of them, uh, which occurs 30 pages into the book. I'll just do a few of these. <coughs> Excuse me. Afternoon light on a stone floor, if only I were changing with it. In middle age, so many still complain about pulling friendship along on cracked wooden wheels, even as they would never allow themselves such callowness about love. It's by the edge of things, the boundaries, that we locate even our souls. After dinner, our host says, We don't clear the table till the next day. Clearing the table right away makes us sad. When one looks upward, far upward, one grows younger. 
waiting for the doctor in her examination room. The door is open, and this makes me feel less lonely. Though I look at the examination table and know one day I will submit myself here, I will be submitted. It goes from there like that. Some longer, some shorter. Perhaps some of these might you might say are af- completely aphoristic. Uh, uh, others are more uh, vignettes. James Richardson, in his wonderful book, Vectors, who's a wonderful poet and, and uh, uh, aphorist, his, his book, Vectors, which is aphorisms, he, he subtitles it Aphorisms and Ten Second Essays. So there's there's some, something of that in these two, I suppose. That I I appreciate the way that that you read them and took that pause in between, and I think that that very much reproduces the experience I had of reading them, where you'll linger in one. Um, each one kind of invites you to turn it over and to to look at it, and then to move on. And the result is that I found myself moving very slowly through each essay in each book, uh, uh, each essay in each aphorism. Um, and so, so the entire feeling of being inside the book is different from, from something that's working in a more linear manner where you feel like you're, you're driving forward in an argument or you're driving forward through a story. Um, so time literally changes. Yeah, I think that's, that's part, of the, part of it. I want, you know, the book... A good book, I think, continually invites you to think back on what you've already read and how what you're reading is is in kind of conversation with what's happened. And the book, the the last uh, the, the last essay called Last Hour, ends with a with a, a journal entry that is about uh, ending a particular journey. Uh, that is, but it's really about ending how many journeys uh, are ended, and and yet how each journey leads to another one. There's a quote in the, the last section uh, of, of last hour, just before the, the ending of, the, of the, the very ending of the book, where I quote from a student essay, something too wonderful. And it says, and the student wrote this, uh, this is a difficult book to discuss because it is so easy to quote. <laughs> <laughs> so there is that too. Our fascinating, like, are we quoting ourselves? Are we quoting others? Uh, I, w- I want to get back to those student essay quotes um, and some of the other material that, that you pull. Um, but I have in, in the notes that I've made prepping for this interview, uh, big stars around that closing passage. It, it's just stunning and a tour de force. And I was going to make sure to ask you to read it before we finish the interview. And, and now seems like the right moment for that. Would you be willing to do that? I'd be delighted. Uh, journal entry. La Paz, Bolivia, 1998. In less than an hour, Lisa and I fly back to the States, but I'm eager to travel onward and elsewhere. Our success together has encouraged us to plan a longer, more elaborate journey. Still, all the while, I also sense the futility of travel. How many ports and stations, busy or remote? How many odd customs and dangerous practices? How many trekker breakfasts, muddy streets, and lines at currency exchanges? How many taxis and city afternoons that pull your muscles with an existential weariness? And how many closed Sunday towns and cool, dim, reposing churches and buzzing nights around fluorescent-lit corner cafes in which ragged, romantic, gassy, drunk, confused expats sit with similar book locals 
How many snapshots and chocolate bars and brief stops for shits in lobby bathrooms of five-star hotels? How many chilly rooms and dirty rooms and solicitous waiters who cannot afford to eat what they serve? How many sore neck arrivals pursued by your own less flattering odors? How many fears at the border? How many more villages that have only rock candy for sale or fat wads of green cigars? How many of your seats on buses already occupied by sleeping men the ticket taker is afraid to awaken? How many observations of the way it was at home, that place somehow you somehow cannot take note of? How many pertinent, impenetrable, interpretable, ambiguous glances from the native and frank, importuning stares from other travelers? How much more of the traveler's loneliness? How many resemblances in cemeteries? How many tips and postcards and journal entries and receipts and stamps in the passport? How many impoverished shoulders hauling improbable loads, armoires or sewing machines? The gold sparks spray from the railroad engine into the stars. The tea is hot and welcome. The coffee is tepid and all there is. Take a pill. Take a moment. Make an offering to the gods of tossed wash water, to the busy dog with one eye. Open your window and meet the defaced Buddhas. How many vague directions and rocking tables and witty images and angelus bells and empty roads lined with fallen rotted oranges? Why enumerate further the conical skulls in the museum? Why press your palm against famous fallen stones? Here is where they rip the hearts out of their enemies for the god of the sun. That boat left 20 minutes ago. Perhaps you should rest today. Perhaps you should sleep under the net. It is more comfortable that way. Count your frostbitten bandaged fingers. How many expectations and tenth chances and picturesque hopes must go into your bag in the closet, a bag anybody could use? How many departures are, departures are necessary, rich and dreaming, to chase away all ends? Jesus, Don, that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. That really did start as a journal entry. I mean, it's been, been uh, streamlined some, uh, but uh, it was a kind, of a, kind of a, a kind of a lucky moment for me thank thank you for telling the rest of the writers out there that this was in fact revised that's uh, a kindness <laughs> it's it's beautiful it's swelling it's it's evocative it's lyric in the most intense and sort of time freezing sense the way it's folding in all of these different moments and different travels um you're a poet can you talk? Well, actually, you're a poet. You're a fiction writer. You work across genre. Um, can you tell us how genreic thinking works in your sensibility, if at all? You know, as someone who works in all these different domains, a lot of us don't. Um, how does that inform the choices that you make in the ways you end your book? Hmm, that's a good question. That's several questions. Well, I can say this: I, uh, I. It, it, my relationship to genre has been organic through time. I, I started as a poet. That's what I wanted to be. Uh, that's, you know, that's what a, young, a lot of young people want to be. And so I was besotted with it and, and pursued it. And that's really what I pursued for a long, long time. Uh, I didn't really come to writing uh, any nonfiction or prose till uh, I was uh, really in my middle 30s and I started and uh, I started to come on material that I just couldn't figure out a way to make poems out of. I couldn't couldn't create the kind of uh, velocity uh, with exposition that was necessary to to make a poem. Uh, poems have to do so much 
so fast and they're uh, completely, uh, the readers are unforgiving. And I just simply didn't know how to do it. So I started experimenting at that time with just trying to write prose that would, would, would uh, reveal, I was, I was writing about travel experiences, which is, you know, a pretty commonplace thing to do, but I was trying to, I had no, I had no special expertise. I had no special linguistics or expertise. I had no journalistic intent. I was, there was some other kind of news I was trying to get uh, into the prose. And so that's how I really got started with it. So it was really just allowing the, the prose form allowed me to, in many ways, I suppose, to be what for a poet would have been more impure. Uh, I think a, a, pro, a prose writer who had begun with prose would not think of some of that prose as particularly impure or capacious in, 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 in more, you know, with the more quotidian details because they would have been more familiar with it. But I, it allowed me to feel as though I could allow, I could, I could set up situations and set up scenes and things like that. So that's how I kind of got started. It was personal essay writing. It got me started with nonfiction and uh, eventually I have I've done other kinds of nonfiction writing as well, but I'm I am looking for for the evocative image and the evocative scene, uh, which is uh, is in in some ways the personal essay we might say and personal nonfiction writing. One of one of my thoughts about it is that it's kind of a it's it's a design by way of excruciating highlights. How about that? <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah. That's what that's what I'm trying to do, I, you know, and and I, I think I'm probably trying to reproduce the experience I've had, and, and you know, when I that we all have with those writers that we most love, and we think, God, if I could only write something like that, if I could only write those those passages, how do they how do they make you know? I'm not particularly interested in this subject, but this person's style has made me so interested in it. Uh, so I'm I probably am always chasing poetry, and and the same I think the same situation emerged in writing a novel. I, I did publish a novel last year, a novel called Butte, which came out from Blair. Uh, and uh, I, it was my first novel I'd written, but it was the first novel that I published. And uh, it's a it's a voice piece. Uh, the, the, the main part of the story is uh, uh, six, it's told by a 66-year-old woman. But she has her own way of speaking. And I think the only way I was able to tell the story is that she had a certain approach to English and uh, the way she speaks and the way she writes that seemed enough to me to be distinct, to be laden with voice and to have some type of lyrical quality to it. Um, so I'm, I'm, those are my, that's my inclination. Uh, I wanted to end this book with, with uh, some way of, of, Putting it, we're, 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 you know, we're putting, we're, we're in the middle of things, and we will always be in the middle of things. Um, and I, and, and I want the book not to be the book points to, to what came. The book begins with impetuous sleeper begins with waking, waking up, uh, and then the person wanting to write down about where they've been, and as he says, I've, I've been nowhere. <laughs> so, and where am I going? I don't know. Nowhere. Only in my imagination. So it's this is as much about being a real traveler as it is being a mental traveler, I suppose. I, I want to loop back to something that you said about, about, I guess we could call it style, something like that. Um, those passages that stay with us that we read and we think, you know, they kind of lift off the page, right? That uh, you're reading Thoreau or something. And then it suddenly seems like 
something rises. Um, and, and I think that's a, a really apt way to describe how the book works. It's like you wrote all of these expository essays and hit these lyric moments, but then cut everything in between. And so you just move from one sort of lyric sublime passage to the next one as you go through. Um, and that, you know, what would be another way to say it? It's all the good parts that you'd want to quote, including quotes. <laughs> yeah, right. many- Why leave the other stuff in there? There's no reason. Just just read this book. It's all the good parts that you'd like. That's that in some ways, I suppose that would be the aim, uh, though, it, it, you know, it's you've got to have the taste for that. That's for sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's like the bond, the bond bonds, right? All the yeah. bond bonds. Yeah. Well, the passages that you'd want to, you know, at a dinner party kind of, you don't know this book, hold on, let me pull it out and I'll read you this passage. And you know, once you read that passage that, you know, if the person is a book lover, they're going to go track down that book. Um, and I think I could, I could probably pull just about any page and go and there'd be another person out there trying to become an impetuous sleeper. I want to go back to those <laughs> students, though, that you mentioned. Um, so, so another way, I think, to describe this book is that you're really amazing at observing um, not only kind of your own internal states, but, but this particular image or, the, or this thing that you overheard or this historical fact about Stalingrad or this anecdote about a bear attack. I mean, there, there are all these sort of things that you're collecting and pulling into the essay. And some of them are quotations from friends who get identified by a first letter. Um, some of them are student essays. And even one is, is a love letter um, in which you're specifically asked to destroy the letter and not show it to anybody. So I'm, I'm curious about how these collections get made. And, you know, I talk to a lot of writers about like the ethics of using other people's stuff. Um, where do you come down on, on bringing in the, this material? Well, that's a lot of different things there. Uh, I, I, I'm a collector, that's for sure. And I think it comes from an early desire to try to find a way to bring all that you feel or see into some kind of literary form, which you very quickly learn that the materiality of writing is, is not, it's very limited. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it, it, it's, you know, I'm always admired somebody like Whitman, who is exhausting to read and tiresome to read sometimes. And other times you're just, you're just enthralled by how much he was able to get into those that was early great poems from you know the, the the first big bursts from the from the 1850s of the city and of his own sensibility and all of it. He found a form to do that. Uh, and how can we continue to do that when we have this 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 form that materially writing is built by accumulation? You know, it's linear. You can't say everything at once. Uh, you know, in a strange sort of way, painters, for example, here it is. Here's the painting. It's all saying it all at once. You just have to have to be able to hear it or, or see it. You know, it's not not linear. You may make it linear in the way your eyes psychotically scan it, but it's there. It's already there for you to see. So how how do you make how do you how do you make this medium of writing, which is built on accumulation, as its key source for pleasure? Uh, how can you bring so many things in at once? And 
And how can you find a form to do that? So I've, you know, I've always been a journal keeper. I've been a notebook keeper. Uh, it helps me to, cause I feel that you're, you're always surprised. Once you start doing that, you're always surprised by the things that you, that you note. Right. Uh, and then you're, you, and you also surprised by how much you've forgotten that by virtue of just having written down, you've at least retained somehow. And that's how I began. There's a kind of mosaic quality. That's probably too still an, a metaphor for the book, but that's what I was trying to achieve. Trying to bring it all in as much as you can. Uh, because the world is so fantastically, incorrigibly plural, as Lewis McNeese writes in one of his poems, the poem Snow, great poem. Uh, it's incorrigibly plural. So how do we get that plurality in, on the page? How do we make it happen in a form? So that's, that's how I got started. Uh, as, you know, using quotes, I try to protect people's identity. But people say astonishing things all the time. You know, my wife says astonishing things all the time. I think she's the real poet. I'm just the amanuensis here. So I better get that down because, you know, uh, it'll, you know it'll be gone if we don't do something about it soon. There's a, a, a note in um, uh, one of the poems by, uh, or rather one of the pieces uh, called Distances of the Afternoon that has a little quote from Emerson, which I'm trying to find, but it's not coming to me quite quickly. Uh, where Emerson says, you know, the the days uh, the, the days bring us these uh, figures and these ideas. Oh, here it is. Uh, and this is Emerson of May twenty fourth, eighteen forty seven. He said, "The days come and go like muffled and veiled figures sent from a distant friendly party, but they say nothing. And if we do not use the gifts they bring, they carry them silently away." Uh, that just nailed it for me. Uh, and then, you know, if I may read a paragraph that follows that, it's actually about journal keeping. Maybe this will help. I, I would love it if you did. Okay. The wordless days are to be lettered. Their figures await portrayal, such as the industrious enchantment that drives much personal recording. Travel most easily makes one fall in love with the task. In anticipation of the mystery and satisfaction, it will provide a forgetful soul. Astonished that even a nuance mattered enough to gain a purchase on the page, that even that each mentioned thing seems deep or true, perhaps complete, surrounded by all that shall remain unmarked in the general vanishing. Whatever else a journal is, whatever else a journal is an emanation of stamina and urge, a potential, potentially boundless form, and thus in some ways pathological. It gives as many chances as you are willing to pursue. It can plot against you no more efficiently than when you have something to hide. It shows how you enslave yourself and your imagination. The page sits before you, waiting for you to explain yourself, perhaps to supersede the point. So, it seems to say, imperious as the unburden can be, you might start be starting to ask yourself, what would the page do about this or that, trying to make it tougher than you are? But it says nothing, shows nothing forever without you. So this is a kind of aesthetic, I suppose, too. Yes. Well, there's there's almost something beautifully moral about it in the sense that, you know, here we are and all of these momentary gifts in time that we can observe are going by us faster than we can see them all. 
even if we are attentive. And so the journal becomes a means of catching them. And the more that you can get into it, the more abundance, the more life you honor in doing that. Um, I think that's a beautiful way of thinking about it. What I also love is that you see the this sort of dark side of the journal and what it can reveal, the kind of pathological nature of it. And uh, I think that's something we don't get to talk about too much. Yeah, I mean, there's a because you can be a you know the graphomaniac. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm trying to just write everything down. Well, you can't write everything down. Uh, you know, it, it it's analogous, and this it, this ha- this journal uh, passage happens to be in an in an essay called "Distances of the Afternoon," which is also about drawing. And you soon learn by trying to draw anything that you can't you you're, you you can almost everything that there is cannot be drawn. There's too much. You only have there's only a little bit that you have, will be able to draw. It's the, it, just the, the abundance of appearances. Uh, it's I suppose it's like the abundances of circumstances and incidents. You know the, the 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 vast permanent ephemera that is like a constant change that's fountaining forth at every minute. Uh, and as soon as you so you've got to do something other than just try to record it. You have to figure out a way to get it down. But the getting down also involves what I hope is the art part which is you feel there's something more than simply transcript, maybe, even if transcript is possible. Yes, I think of you know, that brief aesthetic moment of the, the hyper-realists, the painters whose charge was, can we paint this object with more detail than a human eye can see it? Um, and a photograph can capture you know, more real than, than what you can observe. And I always just imagine them at the end of the day lying exhausted after trying to paint just part of a Coke can, just too much. <laughs> um, the possibilities too endless. Well, there's also, um, you, you brought up Lisa, your wife, who makes appearances throughout here and is, is quite wonderful and quite likable. Um, you know, amused that, that I think any writer would want. Um, there's a beautiful kind of love essay called um, I Do, where you're observing her. Um, and I, I have different questions about it. So I'd be curious to, to see what you'd be interested in talking about. I mean, one might be, how did she, you know, find reading that essay? Um, or how does she find her persona as it appears in the book, given that she is so keen um, from the evidence in the book? But I, I think the other thing, given that you're a poet, right, is, you know, the, one of the archetypical subgenres of, of the poem, and especially of the lyric, um, is the love poem. And so to suddenly see that rendered as an essay, um, and this is one of the essays that I think is is less uh, saccade-like um, and more, yeah, more descriptive, more intentional in the way that it's, it's moving through um, its energy. So, so as you look back on that essay, kind of what seems most salient to you? Uh, I, th- I think that's a good point that it's, that it's kind of it's like a, if an essay, a personal essay could be a kind of love poem, I suppose it is. Uh, well, she does appear throughout the book and she is a kind of foil and, and partner in crime, uh, you know, and so that, that's very important all, all the way through. She actually pops up in a couple of other books as well. And she, I think, is in, in this book. I think she is about this book. I think her impressions are pretty favorable. Uh, she feels like, yeah, that, it's it's just. And of course, she was flattered that I that I wrote this piece. It did come from uh, an actual incident where I did see her, 
in, in a, just completely by accident in a place where uh, I hadn't expected to see her and nor uh, did she see me. So, you know, it, it was just too shocking not to think, okay, this is, we, you know, we see, we see people so our intimates become so much a part of ourselves. We don't, we we kind of lose that up that moment where where we see them as as strangers, uh, as we once saw them as strangers. You know, Joan Didion talks a little bit about that in your magical thinking, where she says, you know, I suddenly realized I was old after John died, but before that, I didn't really think I because we were inside something together, or we were inside of our marriage in our magical place. Now I saw myself. I saw the stranger that I was uh, after he had gone. So there's a little bit of that. I also um, wanted to somehow create uh, create a, an oath. I don't know, a pledge of allegiance. <laughs> How about that? An aria of of allegiance. Uh, but I also wanted the specific terms as much as I could uh, to to be part of it as well. And and also the the mystery of, of another person. I mean, the, the thing ends with that that. Uh, strange episode of the hummingbirds where they're taken sleeping out out off the bed uh and you know it's one of those things that actually happened and and that is you know unforgettable and singular and and in many ways that's what we're doing with the marriage bed you know we're moving those humming sleeping hummingbirds around all the time so so you either have um, to read that or or tell the listeners about that because they're gonna email me if <laughs> what was that thing about the hummingbirds that you both referenced that sounded so amazing that you you didn't describe uh okay uh here it is here's a couple pa- a couple paragraphs toward the end um one of lisa's fears is that someday the two of us will find ourselves not sharing even a glance perhaps only chewing waffles in some chain cafe and by this grimly parroting the talk no longer between us Yet we've already had this meal after an eight-hour decant on trust or night-long dispute on mutual uh, unacknowledged pride. So perhaps the display of mute abstraction articulates a deeper bond. I suspect it less than the show of a couple once in a nearby booth. The woman smeared her mouth thickly with meringue and her partner licked it voluptuously clean. Several years ago, my brother-in-law and his wife returned home from a camping trip and found the French doors had blown open. And in the moonlight, 14 black hummingbirds roosted on their bed. They lifted each and put them out on the porch without waking one. Neither is sure how they did this, since taking care, they asserted, was only the obvious part. This is a couple in their 15th year of marriage, his second, her first. Middle-agers and parents, lovers over the top, each time, the only time. Their story asks, isn't there always the sleep of 14 hummingbirds in the marriage bed? Isn't that our dreaming intimate life? That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. So one of the, I guess I could say it this way, nothing we've said right now is going to lead a reader to suspect that this book is a decade old. Um, so it does have that timelessness of the literary essay of the lyric that seems to exist in and of itself. Um, but I, I came across the book because of what, what struck me at the time is just something that should not have happened. So the book has gone out of print. 
Um, the publisher is closed. And uh, I was kind enough to receive a copy from you um, in which you describe this as a kind of death. And I was wondering if you'd, you'd be willing to talk about when books, at least in this form, exit the world. I've had this experience. And I think, you know, the New Books Network or the way that, that publishing works, it's always what book is coming out now. Um, but we don't really get a chance to, to talk about the moment where books go out of print or publishers shut down. Um, usually there's just kind of a note um, or a public notice or something like that. Um, so can you t- tell us a little bit about your experience of the lifespan of a book now that you've, you've seen the, at least this particular arc? Sure. Uh, well, first off, uh, I thanks for your interest in the book, and thanks for saying that it, it for feeling that it's it's very vital and very alive. I mean, the book was published by Midlist Books, a small publisher in Minneapolis that was around for about thirty years, uh, and they went out of uh, business in I don't know, around twenty sixteen or so. Uh, and they published a lot of poetry, but they also published nonfiction and a little bit of fiction. They were they were really they're really a wonderful press, and they did a lot for their books, like a lot of small presses do, and the books get various attention, like a lot of small presses, books of small presses do. Um, they tried to, when they decided that they were going to close the press, uh, they decided they would try to take their list to another small publisher, and uh, they were they had a good list, and they were approached by other uh, they approached other publishers. They couldn't find one who would. They had made a promise to all their writers that they would keep their books in print, and the publishers that they had gone to to to, to transfer the list wanted to cherry pick, and they decided not to do that. So they, you know, we'll, we'll all be together, or we'll all go out of print together. And so that's that's how they did it. Um, and uh, so I had, and so when they. They, they, well, let, let, if I may, I can read the little note that I sent with the book and then speak a little bit more about this. I think that'd be great. Yeah. What I did was, of course, uh, I, I, can't, I had a whole pile of these books and they sent books to me and I decided, what am I going to do with these books? Uh, I love this book. I put my heart into this book and, and it's going to just sit here in a box. So I decided I would go and make a list of writers and people whose work I admired and I just sent them, sent them a copy of the book. And so this is what I did. And I sent him the book and this is what the note I wrote with it. Somehow you write a book, you manage to find a publisher. You do your damnedest to promote the thing when it finally appears to the world. You savor the attention it garners and brood clumsily on the limits of that reception. Gradually, you grow grateful for the mere existence of this thing, this book you wrote, and that it remains ready for an encounter with the one who may find in it the inimitable solitary pleasure that you have met in other books and that partly set you to writing in the first place. And then one day your publisher, a small operation after all, announces it's closing, regretfully but necessarily, after three decades. Would you care to rescue the remaining copies of your book from oblivion? Books go out of print, writers know that. But the commonplace analogy that each is a kind of depth is apt, most of all because, well, it's still a surprise, for one at least. Thanks for accepting this notice. Uh, you know, we, yeah, I, I'm thrilled to find older books. And they don't have to be old, old books, but older books that are, are just beautifully written. And, and there are many books you think, why isn't this book known? Why isn't this on everybody's reading list? Especially when you see 
you know, by virtue of necessity, the books that are being trumpeted every day is the great books of the moment, which may or may not be uh, the books of tomorrow's moment. Um, and they are, you know, some of the great books come from s- small presses. They just, for whatever reason, they didn't, they, they were for a very specific kind of taste. Again, those books, you're looking for those books that, that not, for books like the ones that have knocked you out, and you hope that this will be one, and you want to want to give it give it the chance. So, so that's where I am with this. I, you know, I, uh, I, I was I was hoping that maybe some readers would would feel some of the gratitude that I've felt when I've when I've discovered books. And of course, the, the one of the paradoxes, at least for me, I'm kind of greedy about books that I really love. Some of them I don't want to recommend. As though, as though they were mine, all mine, and would never be known by anybody else, my secret stash. When, of course, that's the last thing that writer of the book would want you to do. But, but there it is. Sure, I, I once knew a um, a poet who would refuse to teach his favorite poetry for that very reason that he wanted it to to remain his secret. So you know, I think I asked him kind of bluntly. So you're always teaching people that that you think aren't the best, aren't the most moving. And, you know, there was this moment of like, yeah, maybe that's not the right choice. Um, but, you know, I, I think one of, there are a couple of things I want to say. One is that I think this, this is one of those books that I want readers to find. And it's one of the reasons I was so excited to extend an invitation to you to, to do this interview um, with the hope that the new media can in some ways connect us to to work that we might otherwise miss um, had it been published two decades ago or something before the rise of the digital era. And then I think the other thing that, that fascinates me as I sat down to read it is that it's doing so much that at this moment in, in literary circles, especially about the lyric essay, um, that's being described as, as, you know, innovative and now and what's happening. And, you know, you were prefiguring this a decade ago. I, I can imagine this book coming out now and people saying, you know, a new take on the essay, a new vision for the aphorism, um, a new sense of, you know, how consciousness can be played with and, and arranged on the page. Um, so it still feels like it's a book participating in the aesthetic discussions and choices and experiments that are taking place right at this moment. Uh, and that for me is very exciting. That's wonderful to hear. That's what I would hope for. I mean, you follow your, you follow your preoccupations and you hope that they lead you to some place to more discoveries and that those discoveries will be exciting and, and in some way durable, you know, uh, I, and I think it's, uh, it's also, maybe that comes from the, uh, the uh, what's become truer to me as time gone, has gone on, and that is, writers. S- some of our most important discoveries are by writers who are not trying to be relevant with the most. We, we're 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 constantly harangued every day by all that's going on, and we want as writers we want to somehow respond to that. But our but usually what we're responding to is a very thin and and superficial set of stimuli, and our attempts to try to be relevant in that will not bring out our best work, not the things that we continue to, 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 to vibrate and resonate. The news that stays news, maybe, as, as Rapound would have called it. So, so I'm glad to hear that this seems vital and interesting. I mean, I was, I was very jazzed about trying to make, to push the limits of the essay and to try to think, you know, to take, what do I know about poetry? And what, 
what can how can I take what's really the powers of poetry as I know it and bring it to to these to to a form like this something you want to be sitting around all Saturday afternoon with the sun striping your shins and just want to be reading you know right with a sea breeze coming across your your toes I like that I like that for the urban listeners I'd like to think of them reading a page and then just kind of dwelling in it as the the train clacks on and they miss their stop. Yeah. 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 That's exactly. Um, Yeah. Well, so this is a book that still feels like it's, it's full of news for, for the moment, um, both in terms of what it's doing with the essay, but I think in that grander sense of, of pieces you can go back to um, that have a deep morrow to them. Um, What are you working on now? You're on the other side of a novel, uh, you know, you had just mentioned it, for this book, seeing what your your knowledge of poetry could yield for the essay. What aesthetic projects are are driving you now? What questions are you entertaining? Uh, well, I've, I've been working on. Uh, uh, I seem to seem to move from one genre, a circle around the genre. So after finishing that novel and having that that wonderful experience uh, with that, I kind of gone back to poetry, but I've, I've got a, I've got a manuscript that's uh, I'm, I'm sitting around now. That's actually not just poetry. It's a, it's a kind of combination of, of poetry and aphorism and, and uh, expositional writing as well. Uh, and it's a, it's a manuscript right now called dust turns to swan. Uh, and that is, my fascination, my, my wife has been pushing me to, I have just the beginnings of another novel and she's trying to push me back, back to the world of prose. She, she also is a novelist. I'll make a plug for her. Lisa Birnbaum is her name. And she has a novel that came out a couple of years ago from Zank Books called Worthy. It's a great voice piece uh, set. It's in a Eastern European voice in broken English a woman who's managing a strip club, uh, telling her life story. Uh, but she's also a confidence woman. So you may be part of a crime unfolding. <laughs> I trust uh, her instincts. Really. I trust her instincts. <laughs> um, so that's what I'm working on now. And, uh, and I, I'm also, I'm also, I think coming back to uh, prose to, to, to the essay as well. I mean, uh, encounters like this with you are ex- encouraging. Let's be let's be truthful. You know, writers live a solitary life a lot of times, and you know, every time I feel like, oh, I wish I you know had gotten a little bit a little bit more attention for this, and what's the point? Why am I doing this? And I realize, you know, there are so many other wonderful writers out there, better writers out there than I, uh, in the same situation. It keeps me, it inspires me to keep going. And, to, and of course, literary community like this is so vital. How else are we going to learn about each other if we don't have these kinds of connections? So this is a fantastic, a fantastic uh, platform and a fantastic uh, opportunity to talk about it. You're, of course, a, a, a great emissary of that community. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Don. I hope when the next book comes out, you'll give us a chance to chat about it. I'd be delighted. Okay. Thank you for being on the New Books Network, Don. Thank you for having me, Eric. Keep keep the faith, baby. Yes. <laughs> this is Eric LeMay, a host on New Books in Literature, 
a channel on the New Books Network. You've been listening to an interview with Donald Morrill, author of the Book of Essays, Impetuous Sleeper.